Good. Well, each week through these uh, summer weeks, uh, slightly unusual, we decided to give ourselves this theme of not just for Sunday school. Okay? Really just looking at some of the creative, interactive stories that often get used uh, in Sunday school. And of course, as I say, Richie's picking up Joseph uh, next week. But one of the things about it is sometimes it's, oh, I know that really well. I know that one. Um, and we sort of, we actually can sometimes miss a deeper message or a deeper understanding of, of what's being said there because we can relegate it a bit to Sunday school, if you like. Um, so today we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus. Okay. Now what comes into your mind when you think of Zacchaeus? Probably this or something like it. Are you ready? Oh, can we play? Go for it, Malcolm. We believe in you. Everybody can sing along. go with this as well. Yeah, I don't know about the wee, apparently it's traditionally known as the wee little man, but I always sang it as a very little man, as I'm sure you did, but anyway. Well, let's read the story. Luke chapter 19. It's ten very short verses. Um, If you're really into uh, Bible structure, it's actually, these ten verses are structured in a very special way. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. The first verse... Uh, state something almost the same as the last verse. There's all sorts of things that we could, we could unpack with this. It's a very special story, actually, much more so than we perhaps initially think. But let's read it uh, here. This is the New International Version. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. 
Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to seek and to save what was lost. And that means us. We pray today as we just get a deeper insight and a deeper understanding to this story. Would you open our hearts and open our minds that we might know you better, that you would help us to respond to that incredible grace that has been displayed to us. Holy Spirit, you're so welcome here. We thank you that you're the spirit of truth. We pray, would you lead us into truth? In Jesus' precious name. Amen. I've actually entitled uh, this, uh, the talk today, An Encounter with the Author of Costly Love. An Encounter with the Author of Costly Love. And we'll see that that costly love that was displayed to Zacchaeus becomes a, a life-changing force in his life. It causes him, ultimately, to demonstrate costly love himself to the community. One of the things I've, I've always loved is trying to understand the customs and the culture of people who are different uh, from different ethnic uh, backgrounds, uh, different nationalities to myself. I love it, not least of which, because it helps me to understand them and to get to know them better. But it's one of the things Jackie will tell you. I almost always make a beeline for people who are different to me or different cultures and backgrounds. And she'll find me talking to some African or some Asian and uh, just chatting to them and getting to know them. It's just how I've, I've always been like that, really, for a long time. It helps me in lots of ways to understand where they're coming from, their worldview. And we need to know and recognize that when we're looking at many, many, many of the stories in the Bible, there is a pair of glasses that are missing for us. There is a worldview, there is a lens through which the Bible, if you like to mix my metaphors, is being written. But we need to try and put on some Middle Eastern glasses and look at the story to understand it. You see, when it comes to the Bible, not only is it written in a very, very different time in history, it's actually written in a very different culture to, than to our own. It's a Middle Eastern culture. It's a culture of honor and shame. We live in a culture of guilt the Middle Eastern culture is one of honour, high honour, but also one of shame. A culture of very strong community and a culture of very strong extended family. And there's many other things, of course, we could say about the Middle Eastern culture and the culture of the Bible. So if we're going to really understand the heart of the story, we need to look at it through the lens of that worldview. So what I'm going to do is we're just simply going to go back through those 10 verses, all right? And we're going to seek to look at them uh, through the Middle Eastern, if you like, and the religious glasses of the time. <clears throat> That's what we're going to do. And it starts right here in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. You say, well, Mark, you're not going to be saying very much about that verse, are you? You know? 
particularly as Westerners, Jesus entered Jericho, he's passing through. Well, we could, I could give you a whole history lesson now about Jericho and its significance, but there is another song, if you think about it quickly, that goes with Jericho. Yes, okay. So already there's quite a lot of history there. It's a very, very famous city. It's a very substantial city. This is not a little village that we just, oh, wave at as we go by. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. You see, as a Westerner, as from most of our worldview, you think, well, it's fine. He's focused on where he's going. He's just got to focus. He knows where he's going. But we need to understand this. It would have been completely assumed that even just as a man, a rabbi, a teacher of Jesus standing in his time, he would stop in that city. And he would accept the gift, the offer of hospitality. It would have been absolutely expected that he would have stopped and accepted. He would have honoured them by their honouring of him in stopping. There would have been an invitation to stay the night, probably at at Jesus' level of understanding, even if people were already by this time really beginning to be um, concerned about him and doubtful about him. Probably the highest religious person in the town would have offered him a place to stay. There would have been some sort of banquet. Religious discussion would undoubtedly have unfolded especially in the light, because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Remember, this is a context of Roman, Roman control of the nation, uh, Roman oppression, we should even say, of the nation. And the Passover, of course, is also a picture of God's release of his people uh, from Egypt. And all of that. And so Passover became linked together, if you like, with that moment to talk and debate about how the people had been released from oppression, but here we now were under the Romans. So there would have been a night, a banquet to discuss religious and probably political views and so on, especially, <clears throat> I've got one of those this morning, haven't I, <clears throat> in the light of the upcoming Passover. But here in this very simple first verse, we are told quite clearly, Jesus has no plans to stop. He's passing through. There'll be no banquet, no debate with the community about what he thinks is going to happen in Jerusalem at Passover. Now we know he has a focus. We know he's going to the cross. We know all of those things, of course. We know that. But we need to understand the community would have been quite disappointed. In fact, they would have felt offended, you know, that this this teacher, this rabbi, was not going to stop. He's clearly... You know, any minute now, he's going to stop and he's going to wait nicely to to be invited. No, he's passing through. And out of the blue appears Zacchaeus. Verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. All right, we highlighted two of those things. Chief tax collector and wealthy. Okay, did you see those little children's pictures? Did you see the pictures? How are we doing? All right. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Just in case. Did you see the pictures? All right. Wasn't it lovely and sweet? And there's a little like Zacchaeus up the tree, and the people are just standing around, they're sort of smiling. Those pictures are about as far from the truth as you could possibly get. I don't think I can overstate enough how hated this man would have been by the Jews. Utterly 
despised. If people thought they could get away with it, they would spit at him at a moment's notice as he walked by. He's a collaborator. Some of you are old enough or certainly aware enough and would have had family conversations about collaborators, what that means. He's working for the Romans, collecting taxes, and he's rich. Okay? In other words, not only is he doing this dirty job, he's doing it well. Too well. And as we'll see in a few verses, he's clearly become rich on the backs of his own people. He would have been utterly despised in his community, hated in his community. And combined with that, or along with that, he actually would have been considered religiously unclean. All right? So that would include his house. It wasn't just a case of he couldn't go to the temple and worship because of the job that he did. It would include his house. It would include his food, his wider family, his extended family. So they would all live in shame all the time. Any kind of schooling or any kind of community life, they would not be included. They'd be out on the edge. Not just Zacchaeus, his family. Everything about it, unclean, shameful. Hard for us to grasp, but that's how it would have been. Many of you will know throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the words tax collectors and what are always put together. You can hear it. Tax collectors and sinners. That's how they're referred to. They're always put together. This man would have had no access to anything. To the temple, to worship, to community life. He would have been avoided by everyone. Verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. You know, sometimes there's such understatement in the Bible. (laughs) There really is. It just says because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Well, that is true, and he was short, but there's no way he would have been able to go anywhere near that crowd. Okay? We're not told specifically why he wanted to see who Jesus was. However, I think we can be fairly sure that he had heard some really interesting, provoking stories about Jesus. Possibly he'd he'd understood Jesus' treatment of outcasts. Maybe he'd heard some stories of those who were close to Jesus who had been outcasts. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. But there's something about Jesus there is enough that he works very hard, extremely hard. Again, we don't realise how unusual this is. He worked extremely hard to find a way to see Jesus. See, there were plenty of religious leaders and teachers around all the time, but as we know, he had a very bad relationship with them. But he wanted to see this man. wanted to see this rabbi, this teacher. I have a feeling he knew there was something distinct, something very different about Jesus, and he wants to see what it's all about. But to do that, he's got to get a vantage point. He has two big problems. He's short and he's hated. And normally, in Middle Eastern culture, again, everyone would make way for such a rich and and powerful person. Remember, this is a context of honour 
and respect. And so the way would be made. Of course, someone who's highly regarded would be allowed to stand on fr- in, the, in the front of the, uh, of the crowd, as it were, probably even to walk along beside Jesus. But a collaborator would not dare to ask the crowd to make way for him. He wasn't going to go anywhere near them. The truth is, it's quite likely that if he had pushed his way through the crowd, because of who he was and all that he stood for, it's quite likely in the crush of the cl- crowd, he would not have come out alive. That's the context that we're in. But he's keen to see Jesus. So again, we have to get our Middle Eastern eyes on and understand he then carries out two very highly unusual acts. Verse 4. He ran and he climbed a tree. Okay? Sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Friends, it needs to be understood that Middle Eastern adults do not run in perfect life, in, in public life, all right? Particularly if they wish to avoid public shame. It's just not done. Particularly of men of standing in the community, they would not run. But just stop for a minute. This is one maybe for another week that I think I'd quite like to look at. Where else do we hear of a Middle Eastern man breaking this cultural rule? Think about it for a minute. The prodigal son. Remember the story? A few chapters back. Luke chapter 15. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him. Filled with compassion, he ran. Utterly unheard of. Particularly, not to preach that sermon, but particularly the context of how that son had treated that father and all of that. He would not run. We need to understand this is not normal, okay? This does not happen. Nowhere in the world either do rich, powerful men climb trees, especially at public parades, even today. You wouldn't find that happening, okay? It just doesn't happen. Um, They might get somebody to build them some special frame with a seat on it, but... Okay, you don't run and, uh, with your suit on, as it were, and you don't climb a tree. Now, of course, Zacchaeus knows this. So he ran ahead of the crowd. But I, I want us to just catch an urgency that is in his heart. He's prepared. He, you know, he's probably got no credibility at all, but any credibility he does have in any way is being lost in this, in the, in this activity. But there is a, there's a desperation, there's a desire within him to see Jesus, to, not to encounter him at this moment, but even just to see him and try and grasp something of what's going on. And so he runs ahead. He thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll run ahead of the crowd. And in an attempt to hide, he climbs a tree known for its dense foliage, hoping no one will see him. Now, I just want to highlight something, and I just want to remind you, of something. First thing I want to highlight, I'm, I don't want to go into all the historical and religious detail, of which there is quite a lot about things, even about trees, where they get planted, when they get planted, how they are planted, and the distance, even down to sort of you know, tiny distances, how far from the city walls and so on. But sycamore trees of this size, you need to trust me on this one, would definitely have been outside the city, okay? Outside the town, outside the city wall. And so this is outside of Jericho. This is after he's gone through and he's on the road up to Jerusalem. Jesus is definitely not stopping. 
Okay, we need to just understand this. I want to remind you again, Jesus is not stopping. So any hopes from the people that he might change his mind and honour them by receiving their hospitality and stay overnight, he's been dashed. He's just been dashed. He's, he's on his way. He's not stopping. However, verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house today. Despite all Zacchaeus' efforts to remain hidden, he's spotted. Now, I don't want to make a big thing of this because, of course, it's totally possible that Jesus exercised his divinity and prophetically knew the name of Zacchaeus and called him out. And that I've heard preachers preach like that. Jesus knew who he was. He knows everyone, yes. But actually, it's also highly likely that local children are running about, around and about. They're running along beside the crowd that's walking along and they spotted them up the tree. Or even this kind of tree was used to shelter under the intense Middle Eastern heat and people might well have spotted, hang on, that's Zacchaeus. What we need to understand is that outside the city walls, which is where we're told it would have been, this tree and where he was, he was game. Inside the city, there would have been begrudging... uh, you know, give him his money and grunt, um, but, you know, you, you stayed perhaps civil at some level. Outside the city walls, this man is game. Some commentators I was reading this week say it's quite likely that the air would have been blue with the shouts uh, and the obscenities that would have been, been, been thrown at him as people discovered him. You know when sometimes uh, people are chasing some form of animal and it's, it's caught up the tree? That's the kind of setting that we're, we're thinking about. The children would have been lobbing things and shouting things. People would certainly have been shouting things. This is the context. So whether Jesus prophetically knew his name or not, I think he would have been told his name without, <laughs> you know, quite clearly. What Jesus does in this moment, he seizes the moment to display a profound act of costly love and grace. Not only does he he not join in with the crowd by giving him a right talking to, you can imagine, look, you you become a collaborator, this is what you've done, you've been stealing from your own people, Uh, you need to put things right, you need to go back to the law, look at what the law says, then you need to go to the priest and purify yourself, and then maybe uh, when I come back another day, or whatever, although he wasn't coming back, was he, but... I'll come and stay at your house. No. It's not what he says. He changes his mind completely about not stopping and he invites himself into the house of the town collaborator. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand both of these things are totally unthinkable. They're utterly unheard of in that culture. No guest, first of all, would ever invite themselves. You wouldn't go along and invite themselves. Even you remember when Jesus sent them out, he said, whoever welcomes you, whoever invites you, just receive that welcome. Receive that welcome. And so it would be expected, it would be part of the honour, shame culture, that he would be invited. You don't invite yourself, and you do not invite yourself to the home of the town collaborator, despised and rejected outcast person. It just doesn't happen. 
The community shuts Zacchaeus out when he wants to see Jesus. But Jesus takes the crowd's hostility against Zacchaeus and he takes it onto himself. So you say, well, is Jesus endorsing this man's oppression of the people by inviting himself to his house? No, I don't believe he is for one minute. What I believe is happening here is that Zacchaeus is on the receiving end of a costly demonstrated, uh, demonstration of unexpected love. Zacchaeus is being given a foretaste of what is going to happen in just a few days' time. When nailed, naked, to a wooden cross, often referred to as a tree, outside the city, despised and rejected, spat on, sworn at, whipped and beaten. He cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's no wonder, verse 6, that Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I can't begin to imagine what was going through. What, my house? You you want to come to mine? But yeah, sure, okay. There's a profound moment in the heavenlies. It's that word spoken to him. I must come to your house. And there's a response in the heart of Zacchaeus. Now, of course, verse 7, all the people saw this. They weren't smiling and waving and saying, oh, isn't that lovely, like in the picture we saw. They began to mutter. I think that might be some understatement from the Bible as well. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Remember, if Jesus enters Zacchaeus' house, if he sits on his chairs... If he sleeps in his guest bed, if he eats any food that's offered to him, he is utterly defiled in the eyes of the religious leaders. He's in need of ceremonial cleansing. The words of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, come to mind when we think about this. He who knew no sin became sin. For us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing entering Zacchaeus' house. That we might become the righteousness of God. Then we get this wonderful response. Verse 8. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now again, this is a Middle Eastern moment. All right? We need to understand what's going on here. Because as Westerners, we are immediately working out the maths of what's involved here. Okay? There's detail and attention to every decimal point. It's right, Pat, isn't it? Yeah. We need to understand this is a Middle Eastern moment. This is an exaggerated response 
But it's not negative, it's positive. All right? It's doing it on purpose. Zacchaeus exaggerates in order to demonstrate how sincere he is by pledging to give away 50% of everything he has and pay back four times what he's stolen. Now, even if he could remember who he's stolen from over the years and how much, we need to understand this is a classic Middle Eastern exaggerated response. It's understood by a number of the commentators, if you read, he probably, actually, if you work it out mathematically, he physically might not actually have been able to do this. But in some ways, that's the point, okay? You see, so our Western mind says, well, why did he say it then? If he didn't mean it, he shouldn't say it. All right, that's what we're thinking, aren't we? That's what I'm thinking. I know that's how we think. You see, the culture expected him to exaggerate. See, if he'd have been very British and say, Lord, I'm, you know, I'm terribly, I'm so challenged by this. So what I'm going to do, best as I can, I'm going to start giving in a way I've not given before. I, you know, I'll look at what's coming in and I'll give out of that. And, and I'm aware that there are people who I've cheated. And I'll try and figure out. And if I can, I'll pay them back. If he had talked like that, would you say, well, that, that's a good way to respond. It's a good heart. It's a heartfelt response. They'd go, he doesn't mean it doesn't mean it. That's how the Middle Eastern uh, would have understood it. The mindset, the culture, he doesn't mean that. But when he says, oh, I'm just going to do everything, all right? You can have the lot. I'm going to give it everything I have, you're half of it. You can have it all four times as much. Ah, he, he does mean it. He really means it. Okay? So we just need to understand what's going on here. But there's a, there's a, there's a heart of response. It's a sign of sincerity important here to note very clearly, no one is forcing him to do this. No one's asking him to do this. It's a response of the heart. No one tells him, your life has now been touched by the costly love of Jesus. Here's a copy of the Ten Commandments. You read them and then you go and line your life up with them. No. He sees and he recognizes. He surely must have understood who Jesus was. He's, he's heard about him. This is why he wanted to see him. And he's being received. He's being accepted. And this man wants to come to his house. He's being touched by this costly love. Suddenly, all that rejection, all that uh, the, the, the despised heart of the people that was on him is now turning onto Jesus. It's being turned onto Jesus. And so, what is being displayed, what is being modeled to him is the heart that he now begins to display and model to his community. So Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that was lost. I just want to highlight a couple of things there. Salvation has come. Jesus says, salvation has come. See, yes, Jesus, um, Zacchaeus has promised restitution. Right? He said, I'm going I'm to do the best that I can. I, in fact, I'm exaggerating. I'm going to do as much as I possibly can, is what he's saying. He's promised restitution, but it's not yet been carried out. Okay? Zacchaeus, just, just need us to understand this. Zacchaeus has said these things. He's going to do them, but he's not yet done them. Hear this, salvation did not come to Zacchaeus' house 
because of his reaction. Do you hear that? Salvation did not come to Zacchaeus' house because of his salvation. Salvation came to Zacchaeus' house because Jesus took it there at great cost. At great cost. It was not even because Jesus stayed in his house. It was because of Jesus' deliberate act of taking the town's hostility, all that rejection, all that despised attitude. Jesus took it on himself. He took it away from Zacchaeus and turned the people's reaction onto himself. Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Salvation has come as Jesus comes into the house, but not the entering of the house, but Jesus himself taking a gift of salvation to Zacchaeus, coming to Zacchaeus, reaching to that which is lost, that which is outcast, that which is broken, that which is despised. He reaches to him person that no one else will have any conversation with at no time of day he reaches to him and he says and then the world turns and says look he's with a sinner he's gone to be with a sinner within days he's taking the sin of the world upon himself as he hangs on that cross despised and rejected a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief We also need to understand that salvation is more than just a moment's decision. I just want to highlight that to us, to say, oh, back in X, Y, Z, back in 19, whenever it was, I I went forward at a meeting. I heard yesterday in my dad's 80th that uh, some of my family history I'd never heard before, but my great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother on my my dad's mum's side Uh, went forward at a tent meeting um, and she gave her life to the Lord Jesus at one of those great tent meetings back in the, uh, I think, 1800s, somewhere there. And that, then there you can see that history all in in the family side. And then her husband became a follower of Jesus and so on, my great-great-grandmother. But we can can say, oh, that, that was a decision then. That's what happened then. Salvation includes a radical transformation, a reformation of life as it's lived out day by day. See, salvation is not just a thing that happened at a date back in the past. Yes, Jesus saved me. Yes, I acknowledged. I I repented. I turned of my sin. I acknowledged that he had died for me. But neither is it just a hope in the future. Oh, I prayed a prayer and I'm looking forward to getting to heaven. But Actually, it doesn't matter what I do today because I prayed the prayer and Jesus has saved me and I'm looking forward to heaven. No, salvation is worked out every single day. It's lived out today and it's lived out again tomorrow. We need to know that Hear that and understand that. Sometimes 
Someone will say, I've said this to Ashley before now, and we've chatted about this over the, over the last couple of years, a couple of, sometimes or other. People say, yeah, but by grace, I'm under grace. By grace, I've been saved. But I, what I sometimes have to sometimes say is, yes, but I only know that you've been saved. I believe that Jesus saves us, but I can only tell by the fruit in your life. And sometimes there is fruit in my life. Sometimes there is fruit in your life. And you say, that fruit does not speak of salvation. That fruit speaks of sin and death. Now, please hear me. I believe that Jesus saves us. And I believe, if, to quote that wonderful phrase that used to get used a lot when I was a kid, if today you get knocked under a bus, you will be in heaven. But you know, it seems to me there's enough in Scripture, enough in Scripture that clearly is saying, clearly is saying, by their fruit you will know them. There's a fruit of salvation. And that's what's so astonishing. But just before we get, literally five minutes and we're going to finish, just before we get to Zacchaeus' response, just, just think about Jesus' response here for a second. Jesus clearly does the unexpected, doesn't he? He really does the unexpected, certainly to the people of his day. Oh, my days. It's like, what? He, did, he went, he's going, where? Well, a few days later, they killed him because of it. Brothers and sisters, do not box the Lord Jesus in. This is how he works. He's walking this way, and this is what he'll do today, and this is, he'll stop here. No, he won't stop here, but he'll stop over there. He's only going to bless this one and that one if X, Y, and Z. He's only going to do... We need to be very careful we don't box Jesus in. But also, as Jesus encounters those who are broken, those who are hurting, they don't stay there. Jesus doesn't want to just pick out the sorted and the up together people. In fact, many ways, it's quite the opposite. He goes to those that others don't expect. He picks out the people who are on the margins, on the edges, and he displays the full extent and the cost of his grace and his love towards them. But then, as they encounter him, there's a radical transformation that comes in their lives. See, I believe if someone has truly encountered the Lord Jesus, if they've encountered this costly grace that calls them and says, I want to come to your house, I want to encounter you, there is a response that comes from my heart. I've been shown incredible grace, but I'm not going to abuse that grace. I'm not going to say, oh, he, 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 he saved me now. No, I'm going to choose and choose and choose in this costly grace that caused him to be hung naked on the cross, despised and rejected, spat at and sworn at. The, oh, the creator of the universe that Joel was leading us in this morning, hanging upon that cross. What is my response? What is my response? I don't believe Jesus said to him, right, Zacchaeus, get your life sorted. No, he says, Lord, here and now, this, this encounter with you has just completely drawn from me a massive exaggeration. I'm going to do, in fact, I'm going to do this. He couldn't even possibly do what he said he was going to do. But it just draws that level of response to the reality of the encounter with Jesus. 
But also that's why there's this sense in which salvation is an ongoing process. How do I know I'm saved? Yes, Jesus died for me. But the fruit of that is seen in my daily life. So Jesus' response to Zacchaeus, there's lots we could say about that, Zacchaeus' response to Jesus. Daily, I'm going to surrender everything. Mike said something wonderful in the prayer meeting this morning, which is exactly where I've been living with. Mike said, I wonder what happened to him after that. You know, there's lots and lots of people in the Bible, even the story of the prodigal son. We don't know whether the elder brother went into the party or not. We're not told. You can have a look. You get this all the time. We don't know what went on. But there is this initial response. But if he really means it, that exaggerated response, he's going to have to work it out, isn't he? You said. So the rest of his life, he's going to be displaying the fruit of that encounter, isn't he? Otherwise, what was it all about? What did it mean? But you said you wouldn't cheat. He's no longer going to cheat anybody out of anything. Maybe he he will carry on working for the Romans because somebody had to. But he would understand. He would give the best and fairest price. I understand one of the commentators says that actually lots of them, the regular people didn't know what the Romans were charging. They didn't know how to work it out. And so they just made up the figures. But he would have done everything in his power, everything in his ability to be as just and righteous as he possibly could from that time on. Amen? Because that's the fruit of salvation. So what's our response literally now as we finish? Maybe just you might like to just reflect and think about these things just for a moment. Are we observing from a safe distance? Maybe even trying to hide just going to slip in at the edges. I'm just going to look as far from a distance as I can. Don't want people to spot me. Don't want people to know me. Maybe you would say, if only you knew about my life, if only you knew something of my circumstances, I'm not even sure Jesus wants to know me, let alone the church. I want to say to you today, don't need to be afraid. Don't need to be ashamed. The love of Christ, the love of God that reaches out to each one of us, wants to meet with us, wants to display a heart of grace and love. He comes right into, as it were, the the sin, the rebellion, the uncleanness of our house. He's not ashamed to come towards us not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. All your rejection, all your issues, he has taken upon himself. We need to know today that we have access. We need to know that we can come close. Each one of us has been given access by a new and living way opened up for us eternally by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. That scripture goes on. It means we can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence, knowing that he receives us as precious and loved sons and daughters. Oh, the grace of God. Oh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Oh, the grace. Oh, the grace. Why then do we sometimes abuse grace? Why do we, why do we cheapen costly, costly grace? The grace that took all the rejection upon itself. Wounded, beaten, bruised, despised. Took it upon itself that we might know love. Invitation this morning. Maybe for the first time to come. Don't need to hide. You say, yeah, but you don't know my past. You don't know my history. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. No, I might not, but Jesus does. And he says, I want to come to your house today. Doesn't matter. I will come to your house. If he can go to Zacchaeus' house, I tell you, he can go to anybody's house. But I want to say to you, as he comes... He will undo you. He will undo you with his love. He will undo you with his grace. And he will, the Spirit of God will call forth from you a response that will be lived out, lived out through your life. Jesus speaks to us today. How do we respond? What's our response? Is it just a a gentle measure? Well, I'll I'll, I'll leave here today. Look, I'll I'll try and do a bit better. I'll try and do a bit more. I want to invite you today a generous, wholehearted, indeed over-the-top response to the love of God demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Begin to display. Allow the Spirit to bring a radical transformation, reformation of your life. Let it work itself out. That's the fruit. The fruit of his life would have been seen in that community because he would have been utterly different from that day on. He was no longer like the other tax collectors. He was no longer like the world expected him. He was radically different, radically changed. And the result of that that demonstration of grace worked out in his salvation, working out in his life day after day. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this great story. Lord, help us not just to relegate it just to Sunday school. Hey, wasn't that great? Jesus saw a little guy and he he became friends. Lord, there's so much more. Such a mighty, mighty picture of your your love and your grace. As we see what that meant, what it led you to some days later, as it led you to the cross. Lord, we pray as we go from this place, would you help us to know how you receive us, how you accept us. Lord, we welcome you into our home. We gladly like Zacchaeus today. I pray for anyone here who would say today, I recognize that I was a sinner, I've been a sinner, but I welcome you. I welcome you into my home today. Come and be, Lord. And best as I know how, I'm going to respond to you. Pray for anyone who's doing that right now in their heart today. Help them, strengthen them, come alongside them. Lord, for those who've been hiding on the edges, looking on, thank you that you're welcome today is to welcome us in, to draw us in. I just pray for anyone who's feeling rejected on the edge. Thank you, Lord, that you 
display such love. Thank you for your word. Speak to us, Lord. Let these seeds go deep into us and may they bring forth fruit for your glory. We ask it in your precious name. Amen. Just want to say, if you have found yourself really engaging with God, with Jesus at a level that you've never done before today, if you're feeling, do you know what, I'm asking him to be in my life, in my home, in a way that I've never done before, can you tell at least someone else that you know? If you don't know anyone else here, do tell me, but tell someone, because we just want to pray with you and stand with you. Um, Mike said to me, he said, we don't know what happened to Zacchaeus. He would need discipling. He'd need someone to help him. And, and we just have to, we trust that you know, God had people around him that would have helped him. So we want to be here for one another in that, okay? So please do tell someone.